Welcome to Evidence-Based Aesthetics, where science meets clinical skincare. Today's clinicians are bombarded with sales tactics and marketing hype aimed at selling a cosmetic product, device, or service, often with little to no scientific research to back it up. Master Aesthetician Instructor Kristen Group and Dr. Larry Group use peer-reviewed research to investigate and discuss the latest trends, equipment, procedures, and products in medical aesthetics, while poking fun at extravagant claims, as well as each other. Evidence-Based Aesthetics is produced monthly and supplemented by a Facebook group and Instagram. Viewers and listeners are actively encouraged to submit questions and topics for discussion. And now your hosts, Kristen and Dr. Larry Group. Hi, welcome to Evidence-Based Aesthetics. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Group. We are going to start in on our multi-part podcast video series, Med Spa Madness. You have to be crazy to open a med spa. <laughs> I'm with my guest, my wife, Chris Group, <laughs> a.k.a. Chris the wife. laser chick, a.k.a. my wife, <laughs> a.k.a. Are you someone who owns a big med spa and does this all day long for many, many moons, okay? Well, you asked for it. You got it. Uh, we're going to do this extended series on trying to look at the issues, the considerations, frustrations, and the rewards of opening up a med spa. For those clinicians that already own a med spa or you've already uh, have incorporated aesthetics into your practice, this series is for you too. Again, I'm Dr. Larry Group. We're going to spend some time exploring what it takes to open a med spa with Chris, owner of Scottsdale Microneedling and Laser Aesthetics. Before we jump into our first episode's discussion, I want Chris to talk a little bit about her background and what makes her qualified to discuss this. Okay. Um, so I went into aesthetics in 2003 is when I started my first job. Right after the dinosaurs. Right. Exactly. Right after the dinosaurs became extinct, um, I decided to go into aesthetics, um, make cave people more attractive. Right. Uh, so I started in 2003 at a doctor's office and I worked for him for two years and then I moved my practice to another facility and um, that ended up being a sister company of um, the country, which ended up being the largest laser training school. In you the can US. name the, the, the entity that National, shall not be named. National Voldemort laser. won't come get you National, yet. National laser. Um, I was their head laser instructor for seven years. And during that time, I learned a lot about opening a med spa because I had a lot of people that that's why they were there. Well, they were just opening theirs too. There, yes. Okay. Um, uh, in 2012, I left there to um, train people in my own way. Um, and so in the process, we also opened up our own med spa. Um, I did a lot of stupid things, things probably that <laughs> weren't as profitable as they could be. And um, we've opened up a second time because we've changed locations. So one of the things I also do though, is I work with doctors across the country on um, helping with their profitability, helping um, train their staff on how to produce more revenue for the med spa practice. And I get to see a lot of things that people are doing wrong or um, basically- Not as well as they could be doing. Not as well they yeah. could be doing or they're overbuying or they're buying too heavy at the, the front end. They don't need enough money to basically support the business until it becomes profitable. Sure. And there's a lot of, it, it's, it's all exciting. I mean, everybody wants to open a med spa. Why? Because it's a really fun business and think, oh my gosh, I'm gonna do all these treatments on myself which is actually not true because you become the cobbler's children and you don't want you at the end of the day, you want to leave. So it sounds like a super glamorous um, business. 
and then you get into it and you realize it actually is a business, not a hobby, unless you're just planning on making it a hobby, which is not it's what, expensive hobby. It is a very expensive just hobby. Just dressage horses. Or yes, something, something a lot that's less money. Yeah, so <laughs> it's one of those things that it sounds great on the outside, but there's not a lot of prep work put into it. So what ends up happening is they buy incorrect equipment for their patient demographics, or they overbuy or there's a lot of different pitfalls that they can fall into if they don't have any type of guidance. Sure. And we, then we see them go out of business yeah, for six so months. We, we've seen probably in this area, Scottsdale Hill, uh, we've bought the equipment yes. of probably five <laughs> men's spas that were absolutely gorgeous. They I mean, were. They were beautiful, beautiful. on the inside. The place and was equipped immaculately, had everything you needed, and they went out of business. So. Yeah, and, and usually I, I know that. I mean, I see the places going in, and it's like, I'm just going to wait because I want to pick up something for my med spa. <laughs> um, and I know it's Shopping in other people's ex med spas. Exactly, when they open up. Um, because yeah. you can just see there's a lot of signs that says that this is probably not going to be able to sustain itself. Sure. And then within six months to nine months, they're out of business and some of these businesses are spending over a million dollars to open well, way more than that their, their spas the, up yeah the, the one that we bought that equipment from is easily a three million dollar yeah. practice but it's not just about saturation or there's competition and things like that a lot of it has to do with planning mm -hmm. uh, making sure that you have the right patient demographic we're going to get into those planning mm -hmm. stages making sure before you ever buy anything we're going to smack your hand about a hundred times before you get to buy something yes. and tell you what to look for why we need you to look for it and then why it makes sense to you know make sure that you do your research and buy appropriately for your practice all right let's jump in here okay so we are going to use arizona as an example but you're going to want to check with your own state a lot of these things we're going to talk about are applicable to other states and a few times that they're not we'll try to you know talk about that um we're not going to give specific legal accounting or medical advice. That's what attorneys, accountants in your state and board and laws are for. Uh, we're going to give you some where to find some of that information and some probably some best practices. And we can give some specific examples from our own experience. But of course, if you're going to opening up a venture of this magnitude, you want to check with the people that do this for a living that are professional, licensed, bonded, good at it, right? So you're going to want to talk to an attorney, an accountant, and you definitely want to take a look at your state board laws and regulations. We're going to try to look at the perspective or try to come from the perspective of all licensures as the issues are kind of similar for a doctor versus an esthetician wanting to open his or her own med spa. There are some different needs. There's some things that an esthetician would need in, in addition uh, to her, her or his own licensure. But generally, all of these things need to be in place for that facility. Um, we're going to talk a little bit with, about Chris's own experience. She's a licensed aesthetic instructor as well as a uh, certified laser supervisor in the state of Arizona. So she has a really good um, knowledge of the laws here in Arizona. And just so you know, the Arizona laws are pretty much the first laser laws that were out there in the, in the country. And most states are sort of modeling themselves after this. <clears throat> there are a few weird oddball states out there like California. <laughs> Sorry, Californians. I do love it out there that um, sir, only certain licensures can even touch lasers. New Jersey's another one of those. So we'll try to, you know, there's a few places like that that this is may or may not apply, but just the generalities of what to look for, how to purchase, what things to research is going to apply to you. Okay. Um, you've been doing a lot of consulting, so we're going to sort of share some of your experiences with some of the other clients that you've worked with, some of the mistakes they've made and some of their successes as well. 
We're going to try to keep the topic separated into about 20 minute or so blocks, but there are a lot of things to discuss, so we'll just keep on making episodes until we have covered all the material we need. So there's going to be a lot of episodes. I can't tell you how many, so that's why I say it's a multi-part. We're just going to keep rolling, okay? All right, let's jump in here. Setting up your med spa business. Usually the first thing is the name. How did you come up with your name? I like a name that's pretty descriptive. So okay. Scottsdale Microneedling and Lasers, pretty descriptive. I've got the city that I'm in right. and the two biggest procedures that I do. Is Why is that a good thing though? Because I've had people th think like, uh, you know, Avalon Med Spa or cool sounding names. What's the, what do you think the problem with that is? Because we've seen that problem before. Well, it's sometimes, I mean... Sorry, that's telling me to take one take, of my time pills. Time to take a pill. She's going to turn <laughs> to a werewolf here very shortly. Go for it. That's how you know when you're old um, is you have to do that. Um, um, getting on this name thing, basically what you want to do, whatever your name, you're deciding you think your name you want to be, it needs to be something descriptive for the most part. Unless you have some sort of brand recognition for that name like Avalon or making it up, something like that, having a name that says what the business does is pretty helpful when it comes to things like Google searches. Yeah. Well, it is. And also, um, if you're going to use you know a name, I mean, there's a lot of really cute names out there, but you want to make sure that when you put it into um, like a website and things like that, that it makes sense. Um, and then you also want to look at, are you taking somebody else's name? Yeah. Um, which you need to look at the uh, USPTO, which is the US uh, Patent Trademark um, Organization and office, basically yeah. office, but in the do a test um, yeah, there, database there, There's search. a database there called TESS. There's a website, you just put a US USPTOTESS.gov. -E and what you can find is you can type in a name of what you're thinking about doing. You can see if someone has um, that name already uh, taken. Trademark. There's a lot of ones that are, that'll say like live and dead and dead. The ones that are dead, someone did have that, but it's no longer an active trademark. Keep in mind though, let's say, say you want something like uh, micro needling fusion and someone else has that you can sometimes do things like microneedling fusion az or something like that you can often change up what's in there the next thing you want to look at is your secretary of state's website when you're doing things like trade name reservation or your business name reservation they have their own little search uh, box that they web search that they can go into and you can type in the name you're looking for and i'll tell you if it's been taken or not with your state um, you can obviously do a Google search. Does someone else have that? A lot of times, though, if you hit the Google search and it comes up, click on the link because in many cases, it's sometimes just an internet troll person who's reserved the name but hasn't done anything with it. Okay. Another thing to consider is your GoDaddy search or, or, or one of the registrar search. I like GoDaddy because it's easy search. You, you can type in what it is you're thinking about doing as far as like, let's say it's uh, Avalon Aesthetics. Dot com. Type in Avalon Aesthetics, and if that's been taken, it's going to say, hey, this name's been taken, but maybe give you ones that aren't taken, .net, or they sometimes give you suggestions of how to change it up. Um, and another important one to look at is the Gmail search. Like, pretend you're going to, when you're in Gmail, or if you, if you use Gmail or Yahoo Mail or one of those types of services, if you do use those services, pretend you're signing up for one. Go to the button where it says sign up. Put in the name, and it'll tell you if it's been taken or not or, or what sort of change you could make to it, like O1 or AZ or something like that. And finally, I think, you know, looking at Facebook and Instagram, <coughs> uh, a lot of those times you want to take a look and make sure someone's not on there. 
once you have that name figured out based on all of those search parameters, and maybe talk to somebody else too about it. Get some other opinions before you settle in on the name. Because once you kind of do, you start to spend money on marketing and advertising and brochures and branding. And branding. It's expensive, so you don't want to you don't want to switch midway. So run it by your friends. Run it by some potential customers if you know you have those people. Even run it by some you know colleagues or people that are in the business and say, hey, is this a good name or not? Yeah. And by the way, the difference doing a um, USPTO trademark name, uh, not every name of a business has to be trademarked. Right. Okay. So like Scottsdale uh, Microneeding and Lasers is not trademarked because it's very common words put together. And quite frankly, there's no value in trademarking True. it. So like Skin Cells is trademarked because that is a brand. And and we made up the name and we yes, wanted, and it, it's our brand. It right? is our brand. So our brand. we no, wanted to protect that brand name. Having a, a trade name in your state is completely different than one that's a national that's right. uh, trademark. So I've got a former student of mine who was all excited that you know she's got a trade name here in the state of Arizona. Um, and I had to break it to her that, yes, you may have a trade name in the state of Arizona, but it isn't trademarked in the U.S. So it doesn't mean that it's still protected. Um, so, I mean, if you're just going to have Joe Smith's Med Spa, um, or Janet Smith's Med Spa, whatever, it's really not worth the money and the effort to do a trademark yeah. on it. You might want to talk um, to an attorney just to get a, you know, get one of those like legal Zoom if you feel like doing it. Just yeah. do a quick thing. Hey, is this worth trademarking? In many cases, they'll say, hey, it's not trademarkable because yeah. it is too common. And by the way, you can trademark your own stuff. So cool. it's about 200 I think it's down to $275 now. Um, it takes about six months if you do it correctly. You can have an attorney do it for you, but we do all of our own trademarks. It just is a little bit of work. It is a work. You pretty much have to know what to, what sort of things to follow on the form. In some cases, if you're you know if you're in the business of trademarking things, it's easy. <laughs> if you're not, um, if you can't figure it out, obviously talk to someone who can. There are also firms on there that are that are probably owned by an attorney that are that sort of do trademarking for you. That might be a little bit less money too. Okay, so once you have your name figured out, however you went about that, the next thing you're going to figure out is what is the structure of the business. And what we're talking about is things like sole proprietor versus partnership versus LLC versus S-Corp versus C-Corp. This is one of those times that you don't want to just guess at it, okay? You want to talk to a tax um, tax or an accountant, uh, tax, a tax That's attorney true. or an accountant. Th those are both helpful mm -hmm. people who are going to give you a, a sense of, hey, here's what you should start with. Now, this is some advice I got, and, and I think it's pretty decent advice. If, if you're in doubt, one of the things you can consider doing, and again, it's always best to check with an attorney first, but you can consider is temporarily structure as a sole proprietorship or a partnership, and then have a professional help figure out the right entity, which means you can then incorporate into a business. It's a little easier to change from an unincorporated sole proprietorship or partnership into, say, an LLC than it is to go from, say, an LLC to an S-Corp. So if you really want to get started right away and you don't want to spend the time, which I think you should, but if you don't, you, you can consider for just temporarily starting out as a sole proprietorship and then talk with a, a, an attorney or, or an accountant and get some professional advice and then you can change that to a LLC or S-Corp. Mm -hmm. uh, what are you running right now for Scottsdale Microneedling? It's just an LLC. LLC, okay. Um, there are some challenges with partnerships. Um, not necessarily the paperwork part, um, which is its own thing, but it's usually um, one of the things that we, we see people get in trouble with, especially starting out, is this. Um, you know, they're excited to go buy, say, buy a laser, start their own place. And what they're going to do is, is, hey, lasers are, you know, say it's $120,000. We're going to split it 60-60. And then we're going to share 60, that 60? laser. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> 
can't do math. Nobody said I can do math. Uh, 50-50 or, or just do, you know, somebody's going to pay half or, or the other half. So what have you seen with that that doesn't seem to work, have worked out very well? Because um, feelings get hurt. And, and if it's, if, here's the thing. If you're going to go into business with somebody, you need to have the framework of that business completely drawn out in, in a document that you're both going to sign. Um, and you want to have all of your cards on the table before you sign anything. And the problem is, is if you have one person who's putting in all the money and the other person's basically putting in the sweat equity, you need to have it divided out because if that business goes out of business, then who's paying for everything. So, you know, although it's great to have partnerships, everything has to be written down. This is not, I would not go into this with a handshake. Um, because you're all excited until you have, you know, a ton of bills and your lease payment and everything else. And all of a sudden nobody wants to pay. So it's, it's kind of like when my daughter went and lived in an apartment and I made sure all of the kids were on the leases because if one bailed, I didn't want the other two to have to pick it up. So it's just a matter of, you know, understanding what it truly is, put it down in paper, have an attorney look at it and go about it that way because otherwise somebody's feelings are going to be hurt along the way and that's going to affect the business relationship. Yeah, I've been in a partnership before. It didn't work out so great. And it was, you know, multi-million dollar businesses. <clears throat> and I think the smartest thing that we had done is, is we had figured out on paper ahead of time, how do you break up? That's one of the most important things that you can put in your partnership agreement is how do you end the partnership? It's like a prenup. It is like a, a prenup, but it basically <laughs> says this is how we're going to get divorced out of this partnership. Other thing to keep in mind is there's a lot of things to consider with the equipment. Let us say that the equipment breaks and one person is the person that owns it with the money. The other person do the sweat, sweat equity. And then the person who owns it with money says, well, it's broken now. So you're the one that broke it. So why don't you fix it? So those types of things come up. What are you going to do in the event that a, a piece of equipment breaks? Who's going to pay for it? Have those discussions, then have that built into your agreement. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, when it does come up, you will have these issues pop up and it could theoretically put you out of business or at least set you far behind. Yeah. And if you're going to, there's also warranty when we get into right. machines. If, you know, once that warranty runs out, which most companies, it's a year, the warranty's done, um, then who's responsible for paying for the additional years sure. of warranty? Um, so there's, there's a lot of things to think about. Um, and again, the biggest, the biggest part of it is you want it all written out ahead of time. Everybody has to agree. This is the time to have the discussions and the arguments and everything else, because at this point, everything's on paper. You haven't bought anything yet. So it's not expensive. Once you get into it, if you have this conversation six months in after everything's going to be bought, it's going to be really messy. That sounds good. So let's talk about this now. We've got, we need to get some things. We need to get our business name and structure filed with the state. We need to get a business license in our local uh, jurisdiction. We're in Scottsdale, so we need to get a city of Scottsdale business license. You need to get an employer identification number, even if you don't have employees, okay? You're going to, obviously, then you're going to get a bank account, and then you want to get some sort of way to, to process your payments. So let's get started on that. Once you've figured out your structure, let's say it's a sole proprietorship. You want to register that business name and form that business with the Secretary of State. Okay, you do that through your state. Um, there's fees that you form. Um, if you're doing a corporation like an LLC, there's some uh, articles of corporation. It sounds very daunting to fill out. It's actually not that much. But again, even if you fill it out yourself, we strongly advise you talk to at least show it by an attorney to make sure you did it right. The next thing, if you want to get your EIN, your employee identification number, you get that from irs.gov. 
Well, if you put in EIN, you'll see at the top of your Google search or Bing search, it'll say, uh, we'll get your EIN for you. You can certainly use a, a service to get it for you, but it's very easy to get it directly from the irs.gov. So you can maybe consider skipping over those ones that you pay for because it's basically just a, a, a website that asks you some, some questions. The government's asking you some questions, and then it's going to give you your EIN right there. You can either you can just download it in a PDF. Mm -hmm. um, you might need a business license for your city. You want to check with that. So like if you're in the city of Phoenix, you probably need to get a city of Phoenix, Phoenix business license. Um, when it comes to things like taxes, that's kind of a difficult one. What I mean by that is sales tax. Now, in many cases, if you're doing services, sales tax, as it sits right now in the law, is doesn't apply. Who knows? There's people trying to change that. But if you're going to sell products, you're going to sell aftercare products, you're going to sell something like that. If it's a physical product and you're selling it to a person within your state, you're going to have to collect state sales tax and your city sales tax. There are some... Uh, Department of Revenue uh, forms that you fill out and you register to make these payments in this in the state of Arizona What they've done is a lot of the bigger cities have gotten together with the Arizona Department of Revenue And you basically have to fill out one transaction privilege tax license Which basically when you take your taxes and they sort of help you share that with uh, you'll have to collect it in two different ways You collect one sum and then you divide it up and pay the city. What's your experience with it? Has that been a difficult thing to do? No, um, it's it, probably about three years ago, it was actually, we had Scottsdale that we had to pay and we also had to pay Phoenix. Right. That was a pain in the rear end. Right. So now Scottsdale is underneath Phoenix, um, the DOR. And so it's actually a little bit easier. It's just one of those things you have to know that your due date for your taxes is on the 20th of the month and you have to pay it ahead of time. Otherwise, you're not going to be happy and they're going to want their money. Yes, they do. So, and they so, get it. <laughs> yeah, and they're going to take it. Um, so just making sure that somebody is keeping up with your sales tax payments um, so that way you don't get into trouble. Yep. Now I'm trying to go in order of what makes sense to do first here. Okay. So after you got your, uh, transaction privilege tax or however it is your state takes, uh, sales tax, assuming your state does take sales tax, there's a few states that don't, um, you're going to then need that EIN and you're going to need that corporate filing that you did before to go get yourself a bank account. If you want to get a business banking account, they require those things, an employee identification number. If you're going to be a sole proprietorship and you somehow didn't apply for it, you can still use your social security number, but it works so much easier if you just apply for the EIN. And then whatever your corporate filing, you can't just go to the state and say, I want to be, uh, you know, Aspen Aesthetics, file it that day, and then, then go down and try to get an account. It takes time for the state to grant it and approve it. And what will happen is, at least in the state of Arizona and many other states, is once it's approved, it'll go online and the bank can actually look it up. You can either bring the paper in saying, hey, we got approved, or they can actually look it up. If it hasn't been approved yet, many banks won't open your account till it is. I would probably pick something like a free business checking. Who, who do you use right now? Um, First Bank. First Bank, because they have free checking if you keep mm -hmm. X amount of dollars in there. Okay. And what's nice is they have online banking, which makes it simple. So if you are going to pick, you know, a credit union or something like that, having the ability to have online banking as far as being able to log in and check stuff and move stuff around is super helpful. Well, it is also in case people are paying with checks. So that way you can just do a mobile deposit. Gotcha. Um, when it comes to talking about taxes, if you have at least good credit, consider applying for a business credit card at the time that you're opening up the account. Um, how does that help you sort of track business expenses for your for your federal taxes? Well, it's it's actually a lot easier because now there's there's different rules that if you pay, um, let's say an attorney, we're 
paying those. Um, if we pay with a credit card, then we don't have to file a 1099 at the end. Yeah, and it, you know, we strongly advise, again, oh, you want to talk an account with this, but we strongly advise that you use one credit card that's your business credit card for, for business, business purchases use. and do not try to co-mingle your personal account. Like, oh, it's easier if I use my personal card, I'll get, I'll get miles or something. If you ever get audited, and I've gotten audited from one of my practices, um, it's a real nightmare to sort of untangle that. You'll spend thousands and thousands in just bookkeeping fees to figure out who did what. So the golden rule is don't co-mingle. Use your business credit for card business. or your business line of credit, whatever you want to talk about, or business checking if you don't have a credit card for all your business expenses. And don't use your personal for that and vice versa. Exactly. Um, it's, it, it's, it's truly, if you try to go through every single statement and you've got um, things with, you know, where you're buying your groceries and then you're buying... Um, your supplies from Amazon or Rakesson or wherever, it's its a mess. So we keep our business cards are just business expenses, and then our personal cards are just for our personal expenses. And the hard part is if you need to buy a lot of things at one time, you have to constantly be paying it off. That's what makes the electronic banking, the online banking so easy, is you know, you're making money, but your credit card, say, has a $3,000 limit, and you have to buy, I don't know, some supplies and then some other things at the same time. You, in many cases, you've had to pay your credit off credit card off three or four times in a week to use it. But the smart thing of doing that is, is when it comes time for doing taxes, it's just so much cleaner mm -hmm. to have just one or two accounts that are all business doing just the business. Well, one of the nice things too, if you're a new business and you're going to get, if you're a new business and you get a credit card for that new business, you're going to have a lower rate uh, or a lower um, uh, amount that you can spend. Right. So they're going to be a lower limit. Right. If you continually pay it off like three, four times a month, then what you're going to get in the next six months is you're going to be able to ask for a higher limit. So it's a great way to grow a great credit Build score for the credit. business too. Um, <clears throat> but what we did is we just started with a small credit card and I paid it off a lot. And as we continue to grow, my limits continue to grow. Yep. Does, it builds credit. And what's yeah. nice is your business credit does affect your personal credit, which is a good thing. Yeah. And every six months, I actually go to the credit card company and I fill out a thing saying, I want to increase to this. Um, they don't let you usually do it less than six months apart, but that's a way that I've gotten the credit limits up higher that can support that a bigger business. Got it. Uh, last thing on this topic is to talk about how do we take money? Now, obviously, someone can pay cash, right? But we're talking about things like um, credit card processing and in some cases, e-check processing, if that's what you want to do. Um, the easiest ones as far as like amount of time to set up and do things are things like PayPal, Square, Stripe. Um, there are ones that you have to go through an application process a little bit lengthy. Like we use, I, I use one kind of, you use MX Merchant, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, well, one of the things I used um, PayPal and um, Square mostly when we first opened up. And the nice thing about it was super, super easy. The bad thing about it is the rates were really high. Right. Um, you got charged a, a transaction fee for everyone, which when you look at it, it's like, you know, it's like, oh, it's only 50 cents or, oh, it's only 2.75. When you start growing, it adds up. Yeah. And then basically you're just paying fees. So once you get over about, let's say three or $4,000 a month, you really need to look at what other options are out there. And so I was able to cut my fees by using a company it's called mx merchant they're actually located here in scottsdale um and i was able to cut my fees by uh, probably one and a half percentage points which is huge when you start running bigger numbers yeah. so why would you give a company a percentage point of, of your, any of your money if you don't have to moving over isn't that big of a deal it's usually pretty easy but it does take some work and look at the research behind it and some people just don't want to do that but if you don't do that at a certain time you're just giving away money 
Yeah, one of the things to keep in mind when you first, if you haven't had this PayPal, Square, or Stripe account ahead of time for other things, is uh, we had uh, one of our vendor friends who decided he was going to take payments on his own stuff and set up a Stripe account and then found out that they held his money for 30 days and it really put him in a bind. <laughs> it did. So you really need to know that in many cases, these smaller ones, or I guess they're bigger, but as far as like the easier ones to apply to you are going to have some sort of in the beginning until they get to know you, which means how much money you have flowing through. You don't have a bunch of returns. You're not running some sort of scam. Um, they they kind of hold on to your money. So that's something you want to ask and figure out because if you all of a sudden decide to set up, a, say, a Stripe account and then you run you know three weeks of business on it and then realize you can't touch that money for a month, that could hurt yeah. a lot. So know that. Some of these other ones that you actually have to fill out paperwork for, significant paperwork, MX Merchant, or, or merchant services that you can often get through your bank, um, those are, are have a lot more work to uh, and more credit and things like that, that that are being looked at. But they tend to be, again, as Chris says, a lot less money. And they also tend to have more favorable type terms, like they're not going to hold on your money forever. Yeah. And the other thing to think of is when you're choosing a, a point of sale service is does it work with your accounting software? Um, sometimes the reason we've chosen a certain uh, merchant service is because it works with our accounting software, which means it just moves from one into the other and it makes it very easy. Yeah, you can download in, a, in a, like if you're using QuickBooks, say, which we don't, but I mean, uh, you, if you're using accounting, you can either get it down as a CSV or write in QuickBooks format or things like that. That's kind of nice to have because it just goes right into it. Mm -hmm. And speaking of that, the last piece of this particular topic is to talk about you need to know who's going to be doing your bookkeeping before you do any anything past this. Now, if it's you, great, but realize you have to dedicate a certain amount of time per week and you have to pretty much train yourself a little bit on how to do this bookkeeping. It's not particularly difficult, but you want to be able to, you know, if you, it's not so much about bouncing a checkbook. It's make, making sure you understand how business accounts are set up. And then if you're going to maximize your tax uh, advantages or tax refunds or not pay as much tax uh, by making mistakes, you need to understand a little bit how to track what you're spending um, and those types of things. So if you are not going to be doing your bookkeeping yourself, you need to find that person or service ahead of time before you go any further. Well, not only that, you want to do it on a regular basis. Don't save it to the end of the year. It's going to, it's going to be, you're going to make a mess that's going to be hard to get out of. And the other thing is that is keep in mind, whenever, whoever you hire for your bookkeeping, I, in, in one of our practices, we had some um, embezzlement. So you want to keep control of it. Even if you're not doing it, keep complete control of it. it oversight of the person who's doing it, regardless of who it is, you want to constantly have at least have someone giving you a report and then checking that against your balance because there's this type of business where, where there can be cash payments or there can be lots of services that are sometimes more difficult to track than, than say products. It's very rife for, for being taken advantage of from either employees or unscrupulous book people or, or sometimes you're, you know, you hire your neighbor or your friend or something like that. You want to be very, very careful of who you hire to do your bookkeeping if it's not going to be you. Well, and not only careful who you hire, but just check up on them. Right. Okay, let's take a break and let's go to a commercial break and we come back, we'll get started on something else. Evidence-Based Aesthetics is brought to you by Skin Stylus, providing state-of-the-art microsystems to clinicians at reasonable prices. Check out SkinStylus.com to see the latest in micro-device technology that solves the cross-contamination issue without breaking the bank. Call Skin Stylus today at 480-369-6905. Okay. 
The next thing to consider after you've got done figuring out the bookkeeping part is your professional licensure and regulations. Not just the license that you have, but in many cases, if you're going to be using a piece of equipment like a laser or an IPL, it itself, the machine itself, has some um, requirements from the state, depending on your state. Your facility has some requirements, and there are some supervisory requirements. And on top of that, uh, you're going to have, if you're not the person who has the licensure, then if you're supervising, you have your, your own requirements to be able to supervise. Yeah, and this is something, by the way, um, that if you're looking at buying a laser, the laser rep salesperson probably isn't going to tell you about this because they're trying to sell you know, 100, 200,000, pick a number laser. And it's not a really sexy story to say, hey, by the way, you're also going to have to have a medical director, which in the state of Arizona, the medical director has to have um, a certificate from the Arizona Department of Health Services to be able to be a medical director and then they're gonna to have to have the facility registered and you're gonna to have to pay every year to have that machine registered so they don't want to talk about that so i've talked to a lot of doctors and one was actually very recently and she wasn't um she didn't know what she was talking about because she hasn't been um, looking at doing laser and she's actually from a different state and so yeah the rep doesn't tell her and the rep it, and then when then they're, they're mad at you for you informing I know, them of how it actually works and and so our conversation kind of went like i said you know you're going to have to have a medical director classes well i'm an md i said well the state doesn't care you're still going to have to have a class saying that you're a medical director she's like well when did these laws go into place this must be something new i said actually it was 2005 so it's been 14 years um and a lot of people don't want to do the research so you have to understand what is required of you and in arizona you have to have a medical director mm -hmm. um and then that medical director has to be on site supervision or off-site supervision depending on the procedure that's being done at that time yeah we're going to get into that definitely um if, if for the state of arizona if someone if someone's looking to purchase a laser and they have questions, that is something you could answer, right? Yes. State of Arizona stuff. So they'd call you over at uh, Aesthetic Medical Inc. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, for other states, you do have some familiarity, but again, um, there are some states that have no requirements most or states, very light requirements. Yes, most states have no requirements except for the fact that there has to be some type of medical director. And the laser companies will need some type of medical director's name and license number in order to buy the laser. Um, but there's That's an FDA thing. That's an FDA thing right. for the laser manufacturers. We'll talk about that too. Okay, so laser facilities in some states require medical directors. These, in, in particular, if we're talking about Arizona, uh, that there's certain licensures that can't be medical directors. Like I'm a dentist. Um, and I can do pretty much anything from the neck up, yet I cannot be a medical director for some reason. I have to get they my- They say you're uh, very close to an embalmer. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that was the actual words they said to yeah, me. Yeah, so like, a okay, podiatrist can do it, but I cannot. <laughs> that's rude. Yeah. Um, but so, but in this state, uh, you have to have an MD, DO, uh, NP, or an NMD. And in some states, NMDs don't qualify either. So you want to check with your state if it needs a medical director. Stone, so. Sometimes they don't. So that's what you want to check. Um, I'm almost positive, though, that if a state requires a medical director, an MDDO is a sure thing. Those yes. two tend to be a sure thing. Yeah. So they supervise the laser and other procedures. Even if it's not required by your state, it may be still a good idea to consider, especially if you're new to this <clears> and we're talking about liability. Now, Chris, you do some work with laser lawsuits as an expert witness. Can you think of a time or, or some reasons of why, even if it wasn't required, why it would be a good idea to have, at least in the beginning, a medical director? Well, yeah, it mostly comes down to if you have a problem. You need somebody to be able to talk to or somebody, let's say you burn a patient um, with a laser and IPL device. Um, somebody has to be able to prescribe 
something for that patient, depending on the extent of the burns and diagnose, um, and diagnose it. And you want somebody to be able to go to in case you need them. Um, but it, it really is, I mean, because there's a lot of different things that can go wrong. So it's more of a, you know, you need somebody to be able to talk to in case you have to send your own client there. I would also say that there are many cases, say you have a new patient, they come to you and they say, there's this thing on my face, I've never had it evaluated. Most of, what you would have, most of the times what you'd have to do if you didn't have a medical, medical director refer on site out. is to refer out, wait till they figure it out. Having a medical director on site, assuming it's something within their licensure and expertise, they could probably say, no, they're okay, or yeah, um, you should you know, tailor your treatment to do this based on this diagnosis. Because if so, if you're not able to diagnose, it makes it tough to evaluate patients who come to you with conditions. Let's say they come to you with conditions that are not really related. Let's say that they have, they're on blood thinners or they're on some sort of chemotherapy um, and they haven't got a consult from their, from their provider. In many cases, without a medical director there, you would have to turn around and get a letter from that person, uh, person's provider. So it's just if, if possible or if it works for you, it, it's, it's, there's a lot of benefits to having a medical director. Now, there are expenses with that as well. So with a medical director, you're essentially working under his or her license for some of the procedures. And this is very confusing, and this is why we're going to talk about it. So if someone's a licensed esthetician in the state of Arizona, if we look at the laws from the, the, the Board of Cosmetology, they're allowed to do certain procedures, and those procedures are pretty much named out. There's also some general ideas that say, hey, as long as you're not going past the epidermis, you can do that particular thing. Um, so if you were doing, let's say, a, a light chemical peel, uh, something like that, would, I assume that would fall under their licensure. It wouldn't necessarily fall under the licensure of the medical director, although that person's there in case something were to go on. Yes, but they also would need their salon licensing through the Board of Cosmetology. Right. Now, they'd have to have their own licensure, of course. Um, and, that, and now we're talking about the facility. That does get a little funny because as what we're saying is, is in Arizona, there's a lot of aesthetic, aesthetic procedures that are regulated by the Board of Cosmetology. If they're being performed, the person performing them must be licensed. And then the facility, at least the room that the person's working out, has to be licensed and inspected by the Board of Cosmetology. Yes. Again, this is an Arizona thing, but this Board of Cosmetology thing is very common in other states. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's the Department of Health doing it, and sometimes it's, a, it's an actual board. So you want to figure those things out, because if you're deciding what procedures you're going to do, and you're going to decide what equipment I need to support that, you need to figure out who's regulating it and how how do you get how do you get registered to do that well one of the things also that you want to look at is how many procedures you're going to do what's the cost of the procedure right. how much money you can make like so i don't do any waxing at, at my place i i'm not under the boc i don't do any procedures that are underneath the board of cosmetology i'm strictly on purpose uh, even though you are licensed yes to i do am it. licensed to do it but my facility is not because quite frankly i might have two eyebrow sets of eyebrows to do a year, which at 60 bucks, it's not going to be worth it. So you sometimes have to choose not to do a procedure to not have to go underneath that licensure. But if you choose to do that procedure, then you need to make sure you have the correct um, licensure in place. Yeah. And again, this is a confusing topic. And, you know, I would say, again, if someone's, you know, has some questions about this, you would be the person to talk to, at least for the state of Arizona, because it, it, there's a lot to, that goes into figuring out what you want to do and not do, not just from how much money you can make, but also from how much does it cost to get licensed and, and the hassle and work it takes to have mm -hmm. those things happen. There are some procedures out there that aren't specifically governed 
Um, there are some states that either don't talk about it, even though they have a board of cosmetology, or there's some indirect references. I think the, the number one thing is probably microneedling. Mm -hmm. There are states that have come out and said, we, we will not allow you to do it. There are other states that basically don't say anything. Um, and then when asked, if you, if you write them a call them, they say, we just don't, we don't regulate that. That isn't necessarily saying you can do it or can't do it. That's sort of them punting. But what the but, Board of Cosmetology in Arizona has said is it's not a service that is regulated by Arizona's Board of Cosmetology. So if you are a licensed esthetician and you're working underneath a salon license, then you have to post out, which basically is a sign saying that this procedure isn't um, overseen by the Board of Cosmetology. Again, another stipulation and the thing that you need to figure out is actually posting when you're not doing something <laughs> yeah. that's by, by the Board of Cosmetology if you are have other services that are. Um, you're going to want to make sure, though, that you that you understand that just because your board of cosmetology says they don't regulate it doesn't mean it's unregulated. There are other entities that do that those may regulate. things. And by the way, if you're going to, my favorite way to interact with the board of cosmetology and also the Department of Health Services that cover the lasers is honestly by email because that way I have a written yeah, documentation of, of it as opposed to a call. Because if you do a call and depending on who you get and depending on which date is, you may get a different answer. Yeah. So I prefer to have everything in writing. And then I actually keep those documents in the file that is my binder that covers those procedures. Okay. So if we're talking about a procedure that needs a medical director, and in the state of Arizona, those would be things like laser procedures. Laser, IPL, and RF. Right. In those particular cases, then you'd want to figure out, this is an important point, figure out who your medical director is or is going to be prior to picking your med spa location. The, one of the things that we've seen happen is people get all excited to get their med spa going, knowing they have to get a med medical director. They get it all going, they buy the equipment, they do all these things, and all of a sudden they can't find themselves a medical director who will do it for them. Um, in which case, then they're sort of sitting there with this equipment and not, not the ability to even operate it. So we would strongly advise that if you don't have a medical director figured out, uh, don't do anything else until you do. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's going to stop everything. It will. It does put a real monkey wrench in the works here. Okay, so on that topic, finding a medical director. How easy is that, Chris? <laughs> well, it's um, okay. This it's not the easiest thing in the world. It's pretty difficult task. <clears throat> well, it's because you've got to have somebody who trusts you, um, who knows your work. Uh, because out of everything in the in the spa, I always think of the licensure of the medical director is the most valuable and the most expensive thing. Because one, it's not just a lot of money. I mean, these people are paying four hundred thousand, five hundred thousand up for that licensure. It's also a matter of time. You could go eight, ten, twelve, fourteen years. So those are things that can't be replaced. Machines can always be replaced. So finding a medical director that um, that one works with your personality, works with you in a geographic area, um, is going to give you the level of director that or direction that you want, um, that you also get along with, and that also trusts you. It's, it's not as easy. I mean, people think that these medical directors are just hanging from trees. They're not. Yeah, they're difficult. Um, and if it's a good medical director, a lot of times they're busy. So they may be medical directors. And then you've got some people that there's docs here that they're medical director for 40, 50, Yeah, we, 50, we call them, 60. I call them the village bicycle medical directors. <laughs> Everyone's and, had a ride on this. Yeah. So basically what you'll, you can usually find these folks from the folks that sold you your laser. And what you'll, you'll have one or two or three docs in your region who are somehow magically are able to supervise 50, uh, 50 uh, spas at one time. 
Now, keep in mind, we're, going about to, we're about to talk about this notion of indirect and direct, but the risk of the procedures that you're doing uh, and how new you are to it, which is part of the risk, uh, often influences how much um, you're going to pay and if you can even find one. So um, if Chris were to go ask for a medical director right now versus someone who's never done this before, Chris is going to pay a lot less money and she's probably going to find someone fairly easily to become a medical director. If you're brand new to this, it's more difficult because a, you don't have a track record of, of being safe and effective and you don't necessarily, um, you know, you, you have a lot of risk associated with you because they have no idea what you're doing yet. Yeah. So that, that's part of what goes into the thing. What I'm not going to discuss today is how medical directors get paid. Um, basically, it really varies between whether or not you're paying per, per month, per chart, um, all types of things. And what we can say, though, is, is that it's, it's a significant expense to keep in mind. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, I finished up a laser class recently, and I was working with their medical director um, or my medical director, and she had a, a group of nurses approach her to be medical director for them. And they didn't know a lot of the terminology in the industry um, that were really common words right. and which started to be a little red flag for her. And then I saw her the next week and she said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do it. She goes, because basically they told me that um, they understood my reservations, but how much was it? They'd pay anything. If somebody's willing to pay you anything, <laughs> yeah. I tell the medical director to run. Yeah, that's um, scary. There's going to be a problem because there, it is a fee. Yeah. And if they're willing to pay anything to have her, it means they're probably doing some things that they shouldn't be, which are going to affect this person's license. Sure. Let's jump into this notion of direct and indirect medical supervision. And this is where it gets a little <clears throat> bit sticky. So in the state of Arizona, there can medical directors are uh, assigned, if you will, supervision based on the risk of the procedure. And it's pretty much called out in the in the law. Mm -hmm. It'll say that if you're doing a hair restoration, I'm sorry, hair reduction. Uh, hair reduction uh, laser hair reduction, that you can do that as indirect supervision. Now, what is that, Chris? Indirect, indirect supervision means that they need to be available by phone. They're not in the building, They don't have to be in the building. No, they just have to be available by phone if there's an issue. Okay. Now, there's other procedures. I think IPL would be one of the photofacials. Photofacial, not IPL. Okay, uh, photofacials, and that requires direct supervision. Yes. Now, what is that? Um, they have to be in the building at the time you're doing the procedures. Okay, and... Basically, they need to be available. Basically, if, if the board of uh, the laser board showed up um, and they weren't in the building, what would happen? Um, well, if they were doing a photo facial, they would shut the office down. They would right. they would shut the room down. You so get a you, fine or yeah, something. You like may that. get a fine, um, but they'll actually shut your location down until they get it figured out. Now, what, I've heard you giving some advice to some people who were just starting out and that what they were trying to decide what they wanted to do. And you advise them for a couple of reasons to do um, uh, hair, laser hair reduction, but not photofacial. Why was that? Because they couldn't get somebody there to be a direct supervision. Right. They so it made no sense it. for them to worry about doing that because they couldn't get that. But then you also gave them this notion of part-time. Now, how did that work? Um, so basically what they do is if the medical director can be in like one day a week and then they can be signing their charts and all those kind of things, that's when you would put all of the, the people on that schedule um, for a photofacial or a fractional, whatever is going to be indirect or direct supervision in on that day. So you're saying that if they come in on Tuesdays, schedule all your procedures that require direct supervision on, on Tuesdays mm -hmm. and then do your other stuff on the other days. That's indirect supervision. And that way, um, 
now, do they get a price break for that because the director's only in one day a week? Or how would that... <laughs> it depends on the medical Depends on the medical director, right? Because yeah. if, if they're doing, say, hundreds of, of hair reduction cases, there's still a big workload for that medical director. Yeah. So, um, But in many cases, too, though, you'd want to have... If they came in on Tuesdays, you'd want to have your charts available for them to sign on that day? Yeah. So basically, they would come in, they would sign all the charts and go through them. And, and we'll talk about charting and all that on a different day. Um, but you want them to go through all of the information that they're going to have to sign. But then since they're physically there in your building, then you can also um, be doing other procedures. My recommendation would be as well is if, if you do have some consults coming up, that'd be a decent day to do that as well. Cause then you could actually have a true exam by someone. If somebody felt like someone required, let's say they came into you and they, um, they called up and they say, Hey, we, we have, you know, a significant scarring. We want to be looked at for this. That might be the day that you consider having them come as the day that the medical directors there so that they can actually get a true diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So that works out as well. All right, let's move on here. Okay, so we're done with medical directors. Again, if you have questions about medical directors, you can call Chris at Aesthetic Medical. She'll give you some ideas on, on what the law is, at least in the state of Arizona, and just maybe one or two ideas of where to try to find one. Again, not easy to do. It's not. You want to look at maybe you know somebody who is of the licensure that you need. Maybe it's a friend, a family member. Maybe it's your own doctor. I mean, it, it, it's really, it's going to be, the biggest thing is a trust issue. In one case, I remember when you opened up your spa, you had some extra room. And what you had done is you allowed that medical director to operate out of that one room mm -hmm. and in exchange partially for their supervision. Yes. So that was a, worked as well. Yes. Now, and the reason why it worked out is because she didn't particularly have a lot of patients. But you'd want to keep that in mind. If they had a ton of patients and they're using up your entire waiting room and you can't get to your own stuff, that's a consideration. So. Um, let's jump into where to put this med spa. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we figured out our medical director. We have our name, we have our license. We know what entity we are. Um, we figured out what we can do based on our licensure and we have a medical director who's willing to, to supervise us for the things that we want to do that require that. Okay. One last thing. There are times that you could do things that wouldn't require a medical director at all, right? You would just have to be careful what equipment you picked, what procedures you would do. Yes. Under your own licensure. Right? Yes. Okay. Okay, uh, where to put your med spa? So we like to use a little bit of an of a uh, sort of an evidence based or numbers based approach. Is we look at the patient and the population demographics, especially especially median income, but also pay attention to ethnicity with respect to Fitzpatrick skin type. Remember that that's only a vague guide though, because people regardless of their ethnicity or race come in all skin colors that don't conform to stereotypes, of course, mm -hmm. but. Talk about that, Chris. You know, when you're deciding what piece of equipment to use, why does the skin type matter? The skin type is everything. Everybody needs IPL, right? Everyone needs hair reduction. So why, why does it matter? Well, because certain lasers and certain devices um, are better suited to certain skin types. So if you buy a skin uh, a laser that is best suited for skin types one, two, and three, very light skinned people, but your patient demographics are all four, fives, and sixes, then you're not going to be able to use that laser and you just bought $125,000 worth of equipment that you can't use. And this happened um, when I first opened up our med spa is I had to go to Tucson 
um, to help a doctor who had been shut down by the state. And so I had to do his medical director training, and then I also wanted to do the staff training. And he had a really good salesperson, and I know the salesperson, he's a friend of mine, he's a really good salesperson. And he sold him, and this is a Hispanic doctor in a Hispanic area, almost 100% of his patients are Hispanic. Um, so all skin types four through six. And now there are lighter skin Hispanics, so please don't think I'm not saying that, but the majority of his skin types were four through six. And he bought a, a fractional CO2 and a diode per hair reduction. Um, the CO2 had Why never, doesn't the CO2 work? Because you can't use it over a skin type four. Okay. <laughs> so it had never, ever been used. Like a hundred and I think it was 130,000. He had never used it. I told him he was trying to sell it to University of Arizona, maybe their burn unit. Um, and then the diode is for hair reduction. It's great for skin types one through four, cautious on a five. I would myself would not use it on a six, even if the, um, it has an FDA approval of a skin type six because it's too attracted to melanin. Um, which means he basically spent $250,000 and didn't have a device that could work. His better option would have been to buy, um, a hair reduction laser, like a NDAG 1064 to do hair reduction. Why is that? Because it's better for skin types, darker skin types, because it doesn't see melanin as well. Now, I understand that that could be, that can treat one through six. So why doesn't everybody just buy a 1064? Because it hurts like hell on the ones and twos and threes. Right. And, and there are some other issues too. It's like as far as if you're doing a lot of hair reduction, some of this technology with diode has the ability to do like in motion well, in and motion fast. And that kind of so stuff, if you're so. really, you know, you know, if you have the hairy back guy population, uh, you may want to consider having something like a diode that can do it much quicker than a smaller spot oh, size. Exactly. And we'll get into that. And, and what, so. What do, what really drives your choice of equipment and also your choice of treatments is your patient demographics and what their skin types is. So if you say, I really want to do photofacials, I'm dying to do a photofacial, but gee whiz, my skin types are all four, fives, and sixes who usually don't have sun damage. You're going to buy something that you're not going to use and you're going to waste your money. And it's going to be a coat hanger in your office. So and, and you really need to understand who's going to be coming to you. Well, on top of that, what we're talking about right now is where to put the med spa. So as you say, let's say that's something just, you just want to do photofacials and you have a piece of equipment in mind you want to use, the, obviously the IPL. Um, if you choose to put your med spa in a location with very few people who can get that treatment done, you're not going to do that well. That's no. the issue. Well, and not only that, when you look at where you're going to put it, it's going to depend on if you're in an urban area or rural area and how many miles out from right. that. Like we're in Scottsdale. It's a really rural or urban area. Yeah, I could swing a dead cat, cat and hit, and hit someone hit. who's doing a laser, laser exactly. procedure. Exactly. Yeah, um, definitely. So my radius of who's going to come to because we live in a five-mile bubble. Like, our house is here. Our work is here. Our dog school is here. Yes, we do have a dog school. There are nannies here, so don't judge. Um, everything is within five miles. We almost get upset if we have to go outside of that five-mile bubble. Well, the traffic's miserable. But well, yeah. it is. <laughs> but I'm from Michigan. When I went back to Michigan last summer to see my mom, a 40-minute drive was considered normal. Yeah, because your sphere is much bigger because yeah. there's less people. Exactly. Less businesses. So if you're in a highly populated, dense area, you're going to have to rein in the amount of miles outside of your business of people that will actually come to you because they have a lot of other choices. Right. But if you're in a very unpopulated area, you can expand that mileage out because you're the only game in town. So you need to take a look at that. So if you if you live in a populated area of Arizona, you need to look at, you know, under 10 miles to to be able to get to you and possibly under five miles because people are not going to drive that far because they don't have to here. If you're in, like I said, where I grew up in Michigan, you have to drive a half hour to get to the grocery store. Yeah, then it doesn't really matter. No. 
you know, a lot of it has to do with, you know, how much competition. I remember when I said I had quite a few dental practices and I remember what we were setting up is, you know, I first wanted to put my my dental practice up here where I live in Scottsdale. But there's a lot of dentists here. And I ended up choosing to put my dental practice in Florence, which sounds like a crazy place to put it. But at the time, there was only one other dentist in Florence and there had just been a big development with a bunch of uh, elderly okay. Canadians that were fairly wealthy. So I had looked at the demographics and saw that who was moving in there with people with with of an age range that had a lot of disposable income and there wasn't a lot of competition. So, and also needed dental work. And they needed dental work <laughs> from Canada, right? Um, but what's funny is, is that it, why it wasn't a glamorous practice because, I mean, it was a beautiful practice, but I mean, it, it wasn't glamorous to live and work in Florence. Uh, we made quite a bit of money at mm -hmm. that particular location, uh, probably more than we would have made in Scottsdale at the time. Um, so that's, those are, these are kind of life choices as well, because that required me then, you know, when we first got married, it required me to drive an hour and 15 minutes each way uh, to get down to that practice until I eventually sold that. So when you're deciding where to put it, you want to look at, okay, what, what patients are there? What do, what procedures do I want to do? How much money do the patients have? What sort of competition is around me? Um, how close to your home is it? Why is that a big deal? Because he's like, you know, I drove an hour and a half. Why? Because well, I was miserable driving. I know. When we lived down there and I would come up to Scottsdale <laughs> to our practice, it was a 45-mile drive one way. Yeah, and if there horrible. was traffic or an accident, it was two-hour commute. Um, it was miserable. And because you're the owner, you are going to be there more than one of your employees. Um, so because you're going to be there more you need to be closer to it. And you lose time driving. Like I lost a good you know, an hour, no, almost three hours in commuting I could have spent there. Exactly. It's completely worthless time. And yeah, I could talk <clears throat> on the phone or do whatever, but I, I really couldn't do any work or any charting or anything. So um, that you, was something to consider. Yeah. And you end up tending to stay really late to avoid the traffic and now your home life suffers or you leave super early and you cut off like three hours of actual work time. Yeah. So we're now 10 minutes away. We are here probably more than we should be. Um, but it's our business and, and I have to make this business grow. So having my business in close proximity to the house has been really helpful. Okay. So you've figured out, you know, how close to home is it? Then you want to look at things like foot traffic and where the actual location is. Um, you know, when, we were first, when I first put a couple of my dental practices in, we looked for strip malls that were next to a grocery store because it had fantastic foot traffic and we felt like we just had a lot more volume of people walking by versus seeing a medical park where you, the only real reason to go there is because you have an appointment at a medical park mm -hmm. with one of nine other dentists or, or physicians or, or med spas. So um, that's something to consider. What are your thoughts on, you know, strip mall versus medical park? Well, it's ex exactly that. Now, where we're located, I only work on referral on my own patients. I don't want to rely on foot traffic. So it would be the opposite for It's you. the opposite. I don't want people coming in because I, I'm Which is only, unusual. It is. It is unusual. I mean, you've been in practice for a long time. I know. So. And I am only referral-based. Um, but if you are a new business and want to grow a business, having that walk-by traffic and being able to put like a sandwich sign outside of it that people can see if they're just walking down the sidewalk, they don't have to see into your window is hugely advantageous. And again, if you can get next to a grocery store where you've got a lot of people going in, you're going to get more foot traffic, which means you're going to have the potential to reach more uh, possible clients. 
Yeah, you know, in the medical park too, you want to keep in mind that there's there are things called covenants that the landlords have in medical parks. And what this really means is, say you're you're doctor level right now, you want to put your plastic surgery practice. You may or may not know this, but in many cases, if I go to a particular development medical park, um, there's sometimes how many of, of me are allowed. Like I went to one, and in my lease it said. I made it in this lease. I said, there can be no other dentist in my, in my park at the time. Um, I, it was a brand new, brand new park. In other cases, um, if, it, if that's not in there, I remember a, a, one of my partners at the time had set up fit a lot of money, several million dollars on this building. And probably six months later, uh, one of those, a lower cost type of procedure place came in right next to him and, and really hurt his business. Mm -hmm. So you've got to keep that in mind. It's not just who's there now. It's what's the potential for them to be in the future. You, you can find these things out by talking to the landlord. Yeah. Another big piece is parking. Okay. I remember once we, I had a friend who had a facility in Seattle. It was a fantastic location in downtown Seattle. However, nobody wanted to see, I remember I was one of his patients at the time. Nobody wanted to go see him because the parking was miserable. Mm -hmm. It took forever to find a place and it was like 10 bucks to park for an hour. So keep those things in mind. Well, also if you're, you know, if you go into a medical plaza, the advantage of that is the um, buildings and the suites are usually built up for medical, meaning that they have water in the rooms. Right. If you go into a strip mall, What's the eyes for that? You're going to have to have tenant, the TIs are tenant improvements. You're going to have to have possibly water dropped in, which is expensive. So when you look at the location, that yes, this is going to have great foot traffic, but how much money is it going to cost me to get it ready and suitable? Or do I have to drop in a portable sink instead of having you know the water dragged in? It's there's a lot of things into the location, but if you're a brand new business and you're just starting out, having foot traffic is going to help you. Let's take a break for a commercial, and when we come back, we're going to take a look at uh, talking about the competition and some uh, advantages and disadvantages of the beauty malls. Thanks for listening to the Evidence-Based Aesthetics Podcast with your hosts, Kristen and Dr. Larry Group. For more discussion and information on all things aesthetic, be sure to join our Facebook group and follow us on our Instagram page. We look forward to sharing the next exciting episode of the Evidence-Based Aesthetics Podcast.